Join me in Acts chapter 8. We're going to be in verses, um, uh, beginning in verse number 26. I'm calling tonight's message, They Are Still Out There. And this is a message that can piggyback on the recent messages about mission and reaching others. And when we, I don't know where you were groomed uh, in church life or theologically, um, I was right after I was saved, I didn't know anything about denominations, knew nothing about them. I was just uh, saved out of depravity and figured if I walked in any church, I would probably burst into flames and judgment. But when I got saved, I knew I wanted to connect with people that believed like me and thought like me. And so the guy that led me to Christ sent me to a little Baptist church right down the street. And one of the things that Baptists do amazingly well is in, instruct and impart a zeal for souls to, uh, to those that attend their churches. Um, Southern Baptists, Independent Baptists, I know we, we, we joke about them. I can do that because I was a Baptist for so many years. But I'm going to tell you one of the things that, that, that I'm so grateful for from my days in the Baptist church was that uh, God imparted a strong hunger to see people be born again. And I realized several years into it that some of the techniques that I was taught were a little packaged. I don't know if, I don't, I don't think it's unique to Baptist churches. A lot of churches major on, let me give you four verses, and I'm going to try with all my might to get a prayer for Jesus out of you so I can go back and tell everybody somebody got saved. Have you ever been in that environment? No? Well, okay. <laughs> Just trust me then. It's out there. Um, and, and, and it's more about kind of wrangling a religious prayer out of somebody rather than taking your time and, and loving them. Sometimes it was about numbers, and I, I realized that a few years into it. Um, when I read Acts chapter 8 and the verses we're going to share tonight, what I'm impacted by is the supernatural, sovereign work of God that is employed on behalf of of one unbeliever that God had determined he wanted to bring into the kingdom. When we're thinking about evangelism, I really want us to think, when we are talking about winning people to Jesus, whatever phrase you want to use to describe what it means to help welcome somebody into the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ, I want us to realize it's a whole lot more than getting them to nod their head that they agree with four verses out of the book of Romans and then getting them to pray a prayer. It is so much more than that. I believe as we approach the second coming of Jesus Christ, and not a soul in the room knows when that's going to be, but we're closer today than we were yesterday, right? And so as we grow closer and closer to that day, here's what I'm praying for and here's what I'm believing for. I believe that we will see more people come to Jesus Christ through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in, in addition to the presentation of the gospel. I believe we will see, and I don't think it's too far out there, we're going to see an uptick in the manifest, visible, miraculous, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that God used all throughout the Gospels, all throughout the book of Acts, and it's alluded to in all of the epistles. And then when you read the book of Revelation, most of which of that has not occurred yet, it's all prophecy. When you read that, you're going to find that at the end of the age, it's the most supernatural outpouring of both the power of God and the power of the enemy. It is it is an um, apocalyptic collision. And of course, we know who wins. But when we think about this, I want you to remember this, and then I'm going to read the verses. We can, if we're not careful, look at our Bible and we can say, what an awesome God he was. 
When we look in the Old Testament, we see Elijah and Elisha and Moses and the Red Sea and all of these Jericho walls. We say, whoa, what an awesome God he was. And we look at the Gospels and we say, what an awesome Savior Jesus was. He's raising the dead. He's opening blind eyes. He's, he's causing the deaf to hear. He's, he's doing works of nature, walking on water, cursing fig trees. He's, he's doing all this stuff. What an awesome king he was. And then we kind of just skip to the book of Revelation. We say, man, he's coming back. Do you see what God's doing in the book of Revelation and all the signs and all the wonders and the earth and the sky and the sea and the power of God and the 144,000 witnesses? And we say, that's going to be awesome. God's going to be so great. And meanwhile, we're living now like as if he's taken a break, as if he's dialed down who he is. As if he's changed. Somehow, I think we got kind of imbibed with the false understanding that the God who was and the God who will be doesn't have anything to do with the God who is. And we, you and I both, I'm not putting, pointing the fingers at anybody. I'm just trying to expose um, an error in the way I think a lot of us approach the kingdom. We're not really expecting the stuff we're going to see tonight. The stuff we read about in the Old Testament, the stuff we see in the Gospels, the book of Acts, we read about in the epistles, it's as if we're treating the Bible like a history book. And brothers and sisters, the beauty of it is this. I, I believe this. I believe God is saying, I'll be the God of the Bible to any person or to any group of people who really want me to be and who believe me to be. And so there's got to be a shift in the thinking of the church. And it's not going to be done by a couple of sermons every now and then. It's going to be done by all of us as we interact, as we live, as we fast, as we pray, as we enter into who God is. Not who he used to be or who he's going to be, but who he is. So with all of that in mind, join me in Acts chapter 8. And uh, let me get to where you are. Let's start in verse number uh, 26 tonight. In Acts 8, 26, the scripture says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And Philip rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now watch this. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. 
And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, now I want you to watch this, the spirit of the Lord snatched, is the Greek word, carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, you may not have have picked up on it at an obvious level, but this is an incredibly supernatural evangelistic encounter. This is not just a guy with a burden presenting truth to a guy with a need, and the guy with a need says, that sounds right to me, I'll ask Jesus into my heart. The, the main mover and shaker in this passage of Scripture is not Philip. It's the Lord. And so when we look at this, I'm just going to challenge all of our thinking and ask what part of this do we still believe can happen, or are there parts that we just assume will never happen again? Because what we see above all things in this passage is not only the goodness of God and the mercy of God, but we see a soul that is literally on the line. We see a man whose eternity hangs in the balance. We see an individual who wants to know the truth but is heading back home from Jerusalem, being in the most religious epicenter of the day, and he still doesn't know what the answers are. And God is sitting on a, the Son of God sitting on a throne in heaven begins to move on behalf of this African man who would be the first convert that we know of in Scripture, the first convert on the continent of Africa. And if you know anything about what God's doing in Africa today, you realize from this Acts chapter 8 encounter, a mighty waterfall of grace has been pounding that continent for 2,000 years. So let's take a look at it, okay? Let's begin back up there in verses 26 and 27. And let's just, I'm going to break this down so easily for us tonight. It, it, we see, we start out with a Christian with an assignment. And we're talking about Philip here. And in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, which I didn't read, I'm just going to summarize. You find out that Philip in this season was a man with an influential life. You can go back and read those verses later. But let me tell you what was going on with Philip. So Saul has not been converted yet. Saul of Tarsus is persecuting the church. He's imprisoning Christians. He's calling for the execution of other Christians. He's about, get, about to get saved in the next chapter. But right now he's lost. He is the enemy of the church. And so the church is scattering from Jerusalem. And as they're scattering, they're going to other places. And Philip is one of those that scatters. And he ends up in Samaria, a place that most Orthodox Jews, even the Jewish Christians, would not have gone at that time. But he goes up there as a Hellenist Jew. He goes up there and he begins to share the gospel and people are getting saved. People are being born again. Matter of fact, it's not just that they're getting saved. Signs and wonders, deliverances, dramatic, radical deliverances from demons where they're coming out of people screaming and, and howling. And so the, the whole area is a buzz and a revival is breaking out. It's not some subtle good church service. This is a booming uncontainable revival with mass salvations, mass healings, mass deliverances. As a matter of fact, it's so intense that the, the local occultist, a guy named Simon, is intrigued by what's going on, and he tries to hitch his wagon to it. 
And so this amazing thing happens, and, and Philip is finding himself. By the way, this is not Philip the apostle. This is Philip the deacon. This is not a guy who is an apostle. So for all of us that were taught, no, the signs and the wonders in the Bible were only done by the apostles. Eh, wrong. This was not an apostle. Neither were all the people in the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about all the spiritual gifts that they have. So this is a, this is a Christian with a burden for people. And so he is in this place, and he is the central human figure of this massive revival that is breaking out in Samaria. But watch this, because this influential life turns into an interrupted life in verse 26. Now the angel, an angel of the Lord, said to Philip, rise, go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now, let's get real. So... An evangelist, Philip is the only person in all of the New Testament, he and his daughters are the only people that are specifically called evangelists in the entire New Testament. Philip and his daughters are called, uh, no, they, they're prophets, but he's the evangelist. So Philip's the only evangelist specifically called that. And if you're an evangelist and people are getting saved every day, all day, you just want to kind of build a house in that neighborhood. You want to stay there. You do not want to leave, but look what happens. As all of this massive revival is going out, God sends an angel, an angelic visitor, not a, not a mirage, not just some simple kind of spiritual vision, not, not in a trance, but an actual angel comes and finds Philip in the middle of the revival, and he says, pack your bags, start heading south, I'm going to take you into the desert. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a great trade for me being moved from where the action is. And it might have felt to Philip like, man, I, this, why would I leave? How could I do this? And so God, knowing what a struggle it could have been for Philip, makes sure to take all doubt out, and he sends Philip an angel. By the way, anytime you see angels encountering humans in Scripture, most of the time the human ends up on their face terrified. So God got the word across to Philip where Philip's not arguing at all, but he has to leave the place of blessing. He has to leave the place of fruit. He has to leave the place of breakthrough. He, he doesn't have time to think, well, well how are they going to make it without me? I'm Philip. I'm the guy that God's using down here. He just is obedient, so obedient, so aligned with the Father that when the message comes from heaven, Philip does not hesitate. Look, verse 27, his life to me is an inspirational life. Why? Because he immediately rises up and he goes. He doesn't argue with God. He doesn't debate with God. He knows where he himself ranks and where God ranks. And so when God gives marching orders, Philip does the wisest things. He snaps off a salute and doesn't ask any questions whatsoever. Before moving on from this, I just want to highlight this. I want to remind us that God reserves the right to take us in any circumstance, whether profitable and favorable or difficult and undesirable God reserves the right in a moment's notice to say it is time to move in a new direction it's time to close one chapter and to begin a new chapter now for a lot of us in the body of Christ in the West we're like yeah that's that's what happened to Bible people but no my friends I want to remind you it's the same God with the same resources with the same mission the only thing that might have changed is perhaps we are not as willing, not as obedient, not as eager to believe that God would call us to take a 90-degree turn when maybe even we're feeling good about where we are. But that's exactly what this calling had. Don't miss the fact that the angel said, um, I'm not taking you to another revival. I'm not taking you to another big city. I want you to head down this tiny little road 
and uh, we're going to go to the desert together. That doesn't jive with a lot of theology today. I don't know if you guys have kind of sniffed this line of theology that's kind of in the air. It's like, I call it spiritual smog. It is the idea that God would never, ever assign a desert season to one of his children. They go, no, that's out there. That is out there. And what they do is they say, well, because Jesus bore it all, and Jesus paid it all, that grace is as, at such a level that you should never have to endure any difficulty ever. And they, they just forget the history all throughout the Scripture, both Old Testament and New. I mean, listen, Moses spent 40 years in the, in the desert just to learn humility. Um, David was on the run from Saul for the better part of a decade just to learn dependence on God. And it was out there in the wilderness. Wilderness desert refers to the same area. You've got the Apostle Paul. You've got the Apostle Paul who, after his conversion, he testifies to the church at Galatia that he was in the Arabian desert for three years. And the, the, we don't really know what was going on. But it seems that that's where he was imparted with all of the theology that makes up the New Testament. But it happened in a desert. And if those guys aren't good examples. Do you remember what happened to Jesus at the beginning of his ministry? The, the Bible says the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And so I just want to leave that open that because I don't, I'm not going to be the guy that signs up for a desert experience. Uh, yeah, let me get my name on that list. That's, that's not going to be me. But I also don't want to be the guy that when the desert experience hits me that I get offended with God. And so Philip is getting pressed into this. And I'm just amazing. The reason why I call it an inspirational life is because he doesn't fight. There's no recorded questions here that he's asking. He's not debating with the Lord. He just seems to have this obedience on him. When I look at that, and I'm, I, I say, Lord, just give me that. Increase that in my life. But let's go a little bit further down. Let's, let's see why the Lord sent the angel to tell Philip to start packing his bags and head down the road. Well, the reason is because there was this unbeliever with a challenge that was migrating that same direction that the angel just told Philip to go. Who is this guy? Well, let's talk about him a little bit. He's referred to, and we know him by the, the kind of awkward title, the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, I'm just going to spare you about the definition of a eunuch, but Google it if you don't know, okay? This guy was an official he was a eunuch. He was from Africa. And look at what the Bible says. He had impressive authority. There it is. He's an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace. And that's a title. It's not just a proper name. It's a title uh, for all of the queens of the Ethiopians. And he, look at this. He was the secretary of the treasury for that region. So he's in charge of all of her treasure. So this guy is not a commoner in Ethiopia. He's a bigwig. He is literally at the right hand of the queen. The kings in Ethiopia, ancient Ethiopia in that region, the kings were revered and worshipped as gods. And so they didn't, they didn't dabble in the affairs of men because as gods they were thought, well, that stuff's beneath us. So the queens ran the show. It's kind of like most of our homes, amen? I mean, it's just like mama knows what's going on most of the time. Dad's just kind of, kind of waltz in from time to time. But the queens were, were really the ones who ran it. And so the queen allows the Ethiopian official to go up to Jerusalem. And so look at what happens when he gets there because the Bible actually pulls back the curtain 
on why he went to Jerusalem. It doesn't seem that he was there on official business. It seems that he was there as a man with a curiosity. Look in verse 27. It says very plainly, he came to Jerusalem to worship. This African man, a Gentile, a eunuch, a man who is a, from a pagan nation, somehow had come into contact with some teaching of Judaism that struck his heart intensely enough to make him want to, to journey about 1,000 to 1,200 miles from where he was to get all the way into the heart of Jerusalem. And the Bible says he came to worship. And it's a word that means he came to submit himself to the God of the Jews or to experience the God of the Jews. And this is a man who doesn't know how to do it. He doesn't know how to relate with God. He's not of the seed of Abraham. He has no understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All he has heard is the, the information that motivated him to get up to Jerusalem to try to worship at the temple. But we've got a problem because there's some barriers that he's going to be encountering here very soon. I'm going to get to that in a second, but I want you to think about this. Let this man represent all of the people in our culture that we are tempted to say us versus them against. The, the people that don't know our Savior, the people that don't reverence our gospel, the people that will never come into our church houses and yet somewhere in the heart of so many of those people is this curiosity that if there's a God, they wouldn't mind knowing who he is. And so often, friends, when, and, and we've, we've really got to grow in this. We, we can't introduce people to the Savior because in order to get to the Savior, they got to get through all of the garbage we put out first. Our politics, our preferences, our cultural differences, um, our morals. You say, Jeff, you're not for morals? Well, of course I am. I'm saved. I, I live in biblical morality, but I don't expect non-saved people to. And so when, when we come at them with our fist shaking and our picketing signs and our heated rhetoric because we think we're helping God be holy, and, and all they see is, oh, yeah, another round, another generation of judgmental, moralistic Christians. Why would they want a savior that they would assume authorized us to act like that with them? And of course, he didn't authorize us. He didn't tell us to go out and preach our morals and our preferences and our cultural norms and our, our politics, whether they be left or right. None of that is part of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is go out and present Jesus to them. And then, hallelujah, you've, you've heard this old cliche, but it fits really well here. We're supposed to catch the fish, let God clean the fish, amen? That's the way we're actually supposed to approach it. It doesn't mean we hide truth from them. It doesn't mean we're vague or wishy-washy. It just means, man, if we're presenting all of our supposed demands of the gospel before we present the gospel, I wouldn't have ever gotten saved. And so when we're looking at this stuff, I just, I think to myself, I wonder how many Ethiopian eunuch type people are in my life right now. And I wonder how curious they are. And I can't see their curiosity. And the temptation is to assume, well, they're not interested in the gospel. They're not interested in Jesus. They seem fine as they are. And they're nice people, moral people, and they don't cause any trouble, and they don't make any waves, and they're just great people. Let me tell you, moralistic, nice, great people apart from Jesus don't enter into the kingdom. So that's why we're here. So let's go beyond this curiosity. 
And let me just hit this for a second. He's got a problem because he's going to the most religious place in the world at that time, and he's wanting to worship God, but he has this cultural inferiority on him. And here's what he's got going against him as he wants to get into the temple to meet the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. First of all, he's a Gentile. He's a Gentile. He, can't, he couldn't get into the inner courts if he wanted to. There's literally a blockade, and this is as far as he can go into the temple. On top of that, even if he wasn't a Gentile, but because of his physical condition, this is a little weird, but there's actually, in the book of Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter number 23, there's actually an Old Testament law that says eunuchs cannot come near to worship God. And you're like, whoa, this guy is just, he's doomed. On top of that, he's just an, he's an outcast from Judaism. He's an outcast. And he's coming up 1,000 to 1,200 miles, and all he wants to know is the truth about God. That's all he wants to know, except all of the religious barriers are keeping him apart. Now, what's even more interesting to me is that in Jerusalem at that time, the gospel, although there had been a scattering and a persecution, but man, that's the heartbeat, that's the epicenter of the gospel at that time. And so he's not only there with Hebrews in the temple, there's Christians still that are there, and none of them reach this guy. Because how, You ask me, how do, how do you know that? Because well, we're about to find out. He's leaving Jerusalem. He's gone. He still doesn't have the answers to his questions. Now, it's not exactly the same, but I think about this a lot, and I, I, I really want to encourage you guys to think about this. One of, one of the kind of the strands of my DNA in ministry is I'm a reformer at heart. That's what I've been doing the whole time I've been in ministry. And early on, I was not a wise reformer because I just went around pointing everything out that was wrong with the church. Uh, not only the local church, but the church at large. So I became known as the guy who was upset about everything. I was 24, 25, tons of zeal, zero wisdom. And so I was the guy that would walk in, that's wrong. Over there, that's wrong. Round the back, that's wrong. That's wrong. You're wrong. And so I became that guy. Not surprisingly, I didn't have any friends. I can't believe I got married. I mean, I talk about God's grace. But, but what I realized is there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. So when I'm, when I'm giving a critique of who we are as a people, it is never because I don't love the church. It is the exact opposite. Because I love the church and I love the church's bridegroom, I want us to be a proper reflection of Jesus Christ. And I wonder if sometimes people come, let's just make it here, come here and they're wanting to know God. And they're wanting answers. And they're, they're really hungry, and they, they, they would love to know what the truth is. But we're kind of, we could possibly be at times like Jerusalem was in that day. People are going there looking for answers, but they're leaving not finding the answers. And I don't want that to be on any of us. And it's not so much always about the sermon. That can be it sometimes. But, you know, so often we traffic so e easily in Christianese. We use our, I mean, I'm, I'm the worst of it. Robbie got me the other day, and he was sending me all these words I used in a sermon. He was messing with me because I was using words that we never use outside of a sermon. So I'm, I'm actually really working on this thing. And I was like, yeah, we talk a lot of Christianese. You might do it at work or in the office. At some point, we've got to just, we've got to say to ourselves, what do people need? 
Sometimes what they want and what they need are two different things. And we've got to think, how do I speak gospel to their need without using churchianity language and at the same time not covering the truth? And so that's just a side thought that every time people come here, we are a reflection of something to the unbeliever. In man, I mean, it can be something as much as our countenance. Please pray for me. I'm saved and spirit-filled. It's really hard. It's really hard. Just pray for me this week. It's been a, and, you know, I'm being sarcastic a little bit, but sometimes that's kind of the what we portray. It's like, oh, man, that's a Christian. I hope it's not contagious. Good night alive. We, 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 listen, every, every one of us is a minister in this house. Every single one of us is a minister. Some of us preach, some of us sing, some of us greet at the door, some of us are intercessors, some of us are missionaries. But everywhere we go, and especially in a, when we gather, people assume that we're reflecting something about Jesus. And I just want to make sure I'm reflecting right. I just want to make sure if they're looking at me or they're listening to me, man, that something that they see makes them want to draw a little bit more near to the Son of God. This man had this inferiority that kept him away culturally. He had this curiosity that he wanted to know God. He had this authority in the world that wasn't helping him spiritually. He had money, he had prestige, he had position, he had power back in Ethiopia, but he was empty on the inside. But he also had kingdom possibilities. Look in verse number 28. So he was returning, he was going back home, but here it is. He was seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now it helps to be wealthy in that day because somehow... He bought something that was incredibly rare. What was it? The scrolls. He bought a very, they didn't have printing presses. Any scroll that you had was handwritten, and he had at least a scroll of Isaiah's prophecy. And we're going to find out he was reading in what is our chapter 53 in it. So this is what I want to say. Everything was going against him, but what did God do? God sovereignly allowed him access to truth. The written, inscripturated truth of heaven in the scroll of Isaiah was in this man's hand. And that was the, that's where everything begins to turn. That's the hinge on which this whole chapter begins to swing in his favor. Because he had the word of God. And it, the word of God is doing something inside of him as he reads. And I just want to remind us all, because I'm a word guy. I know sometimes that bores people. Like, oh, man, another sermon. Come on, man, prophesy. Do something, please. And, and I'm just, I'm a word guy. I believe in prophecy. I prophesy. I do all of that stuff. But I don't ever want to get to the place where my Bible is a non-essential. And so we, he's got the word. And where there's a Bible, there's a measurable possibility for this guy. So go down into verses 29, 30. Y'all still with me? Okay. So here comes Mr. Philip. I call him now a servant with discernment. Watch this. This guy is deft right here. He is, that's another one of those words we only use in a sermon. So this guy, is, this guy is discerning right here. Here we go. First of all, he discerns the Holy Spirit's voice. Ooh, I like this. Verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Just let's let our Bible say what it says. Now, many, if not most of us in here, or have a charismatic um, uh, whatever in us. I mean, we're, we're not, we don't have to be convinced 
of the supernatural because we believe in all of this stuff. But lots of people don't. There'll be people that are watching this on TV or watching it or listening to it on the internet, and they don't believe in this stuff. But let's let our Bibles, I'm a word guy. My, my Bible, the word of God tells me right here, this is after the death and after the resurrection of Jesus. It's the same era we are living in, and the Holy Spirit is talking. He's a person. He, he's, not a, you know, he's not a sound wave from God. He's not some kind of impersonal force. This is not Star Wars. He's, he's not a Jedi mind trick. He, this is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. He is, he is equal with God the Father, God the Son, equal in nature, equal in power, equal in love, equal in every capacity. The Holy Spirit is God. We worship the Holy Spirit. A lot of people don't like that. No, we worship God the Father, God the Son. Well, why wouldn't you worship the Holy Spirit? He's God. And so we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not a mute. I don't mean that insensitively. He speaks. He spoke, he speaks. And he will continue to speak. And on this day, as Philip's just walking down the road, he still has no idea why he's walking down this road, and he sees a chariot and probably a decently sized caravan of people that are from Africa. And, you know, Philip's a, a, a Hellenistic Jew. He's got from the Greek culture, but he's racially, he's a Jew. And the Holy Spirit says, go on up to the chariot. And again, look at him. He doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't debate. He doesn't get socially awkward. He doesn't get insecure. Well, I'm, I don't look like them. I don't dress like them. I don't act. This is an evangelist fully surrendered to the will of God, just wanting to be used. And he probably is discerning enough to know the reason why the Holy Spirit is sending him to a caravan of Gentiles from Africa is because somebody in that caravan needs to get saved. And so Philip, it's, I, I just love this, man. God sends an angel. Philip obeys. And as Philip is walking in obedience, he gets something better than an angel. He gets the voice of the Holy Spirit in his ear saying, Philip, go on. Let, let, let me give you this. Just walk in obedience, and you're going to have greater and greater encounter with God. I'd love to see an angel, but I tell you this, you know, I mean, I've, I've never seen them. Many of you in the room have seen angels, and I, I, I long for that. I actually pray for that. I was like, Lord, if, if that's healthy for me, come on. I want to see some more of heaven. I'm all for that. I've never seen one that I know of. But I'm going to tell you, if the choice is between hanging out with an angel for 30 minutes or knowing that the Holy Spirit just spoke in my ear, I'll take the Holy Spirit any day. No offense to angels. They would say, yeah, that's a smart move, Jeff, because the Holy Spirit is God and he's speaking. And I, I, I want to submit to you that he, he talks to you. I've, I've counseled people and I've helped people over the years and say, no, God never talks to me. He absolutely does. It's like anything else. We have to learn his accent. He is always talking, but we have to train our ear to hear him. That's why I study the word, because he, he's always going to speak consistently with the word, and he often speaks the word to us through the Holy Spirit. And so he's talking to you. And so I'm, I'm going to tell you to take something off your prayer list. Take off this prayer. God, will you please speak to me? Because he already is. This is what you exchange it with. God, help me to hear what you're speaking. And just start praying that. I'm going to promise you, he's not up there playing hide and seek with you. Right. He, he may be drawing out your hunger to want to hear him until you can't go a day without hearing him. But he is not playing peekaboo with us. And you will hear him just like Philip did. He said, well, Jeff, how do I know if it's him? I'm going to tell you something. It's, it's like anything else we do in the kingdom. You can't be an expert on day one. Um, my son is 12. He's extremely competitive. He's about to turn 13. He's extremely competitive. 
loves sports. Dude's already bigger than me, man. I'm like, you know how humbling it is when you're not yet 13-year-old? You say, hey, son, how was your day today? I mean, it's just, but he, he's so uber competitive, but he wants to be an expert at everything on the first try. And so I've seen him, he doesn't do it this much anymore, but when he was little, he gets so discouraged when he wasn't the best at this or the best at that or the best at And I'd be like, hey, man, there's this thing that they call practice. Remember Allen Iverson with the practice speech? Does anybody remember that but me? Practice, man, practice. But there's a reason why we practice. Why? To grow in our skillfulness. And so if, if we just begin to walk in obedience, God's going to meet you there with deeper and deeper encounter. And Philip obeyed. Look, verse 30. He was quick to obey. Spirit said, go join the chariot. So Philip ran. Philip didn't stick his hand in his tunic pockets and shuffle his feet, and he ran. He's very much like Jesus in this. As, as Philip left the revival to go after this guy, I just, I'm reminded of what Jesus said, that the good shepherd will leave the 99 and go after the one. Every single solitary person on this planet is unspeakably important to the heart of God. That's why we dignify people. We dignify people. Even the most offensive person to our sensibilities is somebody that the eternal creator thought to put on this planet in order that they might know him and we are to dignify them doesn't mean we approve of what they do he's not asked us to we accept them in our culture it's kind of gotten switched people say i want to be accepted and what they're really saying is no i want you to approve me no matter what we don't have to approve, but I do believe it's biblical to accept people and dignify them as being made in the image of God. And so Philip presses in and he runs to them. So look down at verse number 30 at the end of it. Philip was sensitive where to connect with the guy. He heard him reading Isaiah. The practice in that day is when you read, you read out loud because people around you want to hear it. And so he was reading Isaiah the prophet and Peter, asked, I keep saying Peter, it's Philip. Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? Why is that important? Well, we're talking about Philip as a servant being discerning. Philip didn't come to him with a bullseye on this guy's chest, an evangelistic bullseye. Philip didn't come, from, uh, come with him from whatever he had formula he had learned or used up in Samaria. Philip came and he dignified this man not coming off as the authority, but coming off as the servant. And saying, do you understand what you're reading? It carries the air of it of, of may I assist you? C can I just give us this? None of this is in my notes. I'm just really feeling like the Holy Spirit is kind of helping us to think through our relationships. Um, I think that non-believers pick up on when we put an evangelistic bullseye on them. I think they know when we care more about getting them to church than we do just caring for them in general. I, I do. And I'm not saying this accusatory. I'm just saying that this, this can be their experience. Like, yeah, you're being nice to me because Easter's coming and you want me to come to church with you. And you're leaving little gospel tracks in my salad. And, you know, you're, you're just trying to, you got a bullseye on me. I'm, I'm just going to ask you some questions maybe to think through. That Christian that you work with that you're naturally just kind of in, you're, you're in fellowship with them. Could you risk it and treat the agnostic with the same kindness you treat your Christian friend? 
What if somebody has something in their moral life that you know is completely out of line with God? Do you run to them like Philip ran to the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch? Or do you just kind of avoid them or give them the polite Christian nod? Hmm, good morning, good morning. And, and never engage them. See, friends, I think that organic evangelism is successful because if it's organic evangelism, it is fueled by love. It's fueled by love. You're not trying to change them. You're not trying to get them to do something so you'll feel better about them. You're just loving them where they are in spite of all the things you may see that are not quite aligned. And, and you, in that same kind of passion and obedience on the Lord, you just run to them and you don't come off as the expert. I'm the expert on all things spiritual. Would you like to attend a one-on-one -on -one class with me? No, absolutely not. You know, and that's the kind of, kind of pushback that they'll give us. But when you come to them in kindness and grace and humility and servanthood, and, and you just lay down your moral card. You don't come with all of the thou shalts and thou shalt nots. That's not how you win somebody to Jesus. Nobody is won to Jesus by them perfecting six out of the ten commandments. It just doesn't work that way. So we come to them in love, and Philip just says, hey, do you understand that scroll you're reading? So let's get down to the last chunk of verses. This guy is a seeker, and at this point he has no answers. He went to a religious setting, Jerusalem, was around a ton of religious people, had a copy of the scriptures, and he's lost. Having a Bible does not get your ticket punched into eternity. Going to church, being around all of the church stuff, all, all things Christian, does not get into your spirit, does not save your soul. He had all of this exposure to all things, but do you know what this guy needed? He had his ultimate need still unmet. What's his ultimate need? He needs to know Jesus. He needs to know your Savior. He needs to know my Savior, and nobody has talked to him about his Savior yet. So let's look at it. So let's break it down. It's one major need, but it was met through a couple of steps. First of all, he had a relational need. He needed someone to help him. So Philip says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I? Unless someone guides me. And look what he did. The big shot from Ethiopia welcomes the ragtag evangelist from Samaria, who's probably covered with road dirt, looking pretty haggard. He says, come and sit up in my chariot with me. My guess is that Philip had never been in a chariot before. So God's actually blessing Philip with a new experience too. It's like, hey, Philip, I've got some stuff in here for you too. Probably had chrome uh, mags on the chariot, a stick shift. It was probably, okay. Ground effects, I don't know. He answers, he says, how can I understand this religious writing? I need somebody to help me. And he says, come on up here. Um, I've already hit this. I'm not going to belabor it a lot. A lot of the people that we want to see come to Jesus won't until we befriend them with the same sincerity, not knowing if they'll ever come to Jesus. That's the bullseye factor. Maybe I inserted it a little too early. Just be kind. Just love folks. Just dignify them. That's, that's what they deserve from us. I know our commission is to, to bring them to Jesus, but listen, um, it's, it's never, Jesus didn't give us a formula. 
I mean, I know we have, we've cherry-picked the verses, we put them together, we bring a person to conviction and, and an opportunity to repent. I get all of that. But there's actually not a formula for evangelism in the Bible, except the one thing I just continually pick up on in the life of Jesus, and especially in the book of Acts, is, man, they just really loved him and loved people. And it was through that love that it was a flow of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this guy needed something relationally, and he got it from Philip. Then he also had an intellectual need. It wasn't just relational. It was an intellectual need for the scripture to be explained. So the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? So he's reading out loud Isaiah 53. I think it's probably around verse 7 or 8 in Isaiah 53. He's talking about Jesus being led to the slaughter and not opening his mouth and, 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 and perishing from the land. And so the, the Ethiopian eunuch's reading this and he's like, who, is the prophet talking about himself? Or is he talking about somebody else? And so the door just opened. There's not a better place in the Old Testament that that Ethiopian unit could be reading in order for, to open the door for Philip to preach the gospel to him. That's the sovereignty of God. Listen, God was setting this man up to get saved. All the man had to do was believe. But Philip had to bring the truth to him. I'll, I'll give you this and then I'm going I'm to wrap up. The reason why we major on the word here and not just prophecy, not just signs, not just wonders, I believe in all of those things. I believe in the gift of tongues. I believe in the gift of interpretation. I believe in words of knowledge, words of wisdom, healing, miracle. I believe in all of that. But the danger is because that stuff is so sensational and people love to come and just, what's going to happen next? Ultimately, friends, there has to be a presentation of the truth about Jesus. Sign, listen, there, there's going to be a lot of false signs and wonders done as we get nearer and nearer to the end of the age. Those false signs and wonders will not be accompanied by the gospel of Jesus Christ calling people under repentance and faith in him. Those signs and wonders are going to be all about the man or the woman doing the signs and the wonders. And so it's not just about sign and wonder. And so Philip begins to preach to this guy. Look, look, verse 35. Here's his spiritual need. What was it? He needed Jesus to be presented. And Philip opens his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he just met him right where he was, he told them the good news about Jesus. So he takes that scroll of Isaiah 53 and he begins to do what I'm doing tonight, taking a Bible passage and going through it and teaching it. And so this Ethiopian eunuch, the, the human work was to impart the truth. The spiritual work is the Holy Spirit's job, which is to open up his heart to the gospel and show him his need. And I want to tell you something. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And so the word of God is not just data. It is living truth. It is supernatural. It is spiritual. Though, whether you got it on your phone, your tablet, or a paper Bible, the reality is there's power in those words. And when we are motivated by love to share the word of God with somebody that needs to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Lord is working. You may not even see it. I may not even see it. But I'm going to tell you something. God's true to his word. And where the word of God is being proclaimed, the power of God is doing something. And so we can't get addicted to results, okay? We are seed casters, we are seed waterers, but God gives the increase. And it's an awesome thing 
when somebody says, yes, I want to accept Jesus Christ. You may be here tonight, and you've never accepted Christ, and you've, you, you've heard all of this Christian stuff your whole life, but you can't think of a moment where you've ever surrendered to the Son of God. I'm going to just tell you right now, the Holy Spirit's working on your heart through this truth, and he's inviting you to come to Jesus, and you're feeling that on the inside. That's the Spirit of God. And, and so he's working. And by the way, if that's you tonight, I'm going to be right down here in about five minutes, and I want to talk to you tonight because you can walk out of this place this evening knowing that this very same King of Kings and Lord of Lords, what he did for the Ethiopian eunuch, he will do for you right here the exact same thing in the sense of taking all of your shame, your guilt, and all of that condemnation off of you and just imputing righteousness to you. And you will have, listen, this, this will blow your mind. I hope you'll receive it. You need to receive this. That you will be made, in the moment you accept Jesus, you are made as acceptable to God the Father as God the Son is. You have no less acceptance before the Father as His very Son does. Why? Because you're in the Son. You are in Jesus. And so that's why the Bible says we are accepted, Ephesians 1, we are accepted in the Beloved. And that is a full acceptance. Some of us know the misfortune of what it means to be put on probation. <clears throat> I didn't get saved till I was 24, a little rough around the edges. And a lot of people think when they come to the Lord, the Lord says, all right, I'm going to let you off. I'm going to put you on probation. One foul up, you're back where you belong. It's not probation. It's called pardon. Pardon. When you get pardoned, you are free. Amen. And you are set free, though you were guilty, Though you deserved incarceration, though you deserved the, the assigned punishment, somebody in authority looks at you and says, I pardon you, and you're absolutely free. Probation, not as fun. Pardon, brand new start. And so, here's this man that traveled to Jerusalem, didn't find what he was looking for, he's going home, he's reading a scroll, Holy Spirit says, go talk to this guy. Philip goes and talks to him. Last couple of verses. One thing was remaining. What was it? He had a compelling need to pledge his allegiance to Jesus. Nobody's saved until they say yes to Jesus. It's not knowing the facts. It is a surrender, a repentance. Repentance means in a moment of time, you change the way you've been thinking about the Lord. And he does that. I mean, he, he oils that thing for you. So it's in one sense, it's him bringing you to repentance. In another sense, it's you cooperating with that and saying, yes, yes, you're Lord, you're master, you're king. I'm guilty. I've sinned against you. I deserve what I get. But I believe that Jesus took upon himself on the cross what I deserved. See, that's the thing. Somebody's got to die for your sin. The wages of sin is death. It's a non-negotiable. Somebody has to die for your sin. There's only two options. You can trust in Jesus Christ, who 2,000 years ago, having no sin of his own, died on a cross, taking all your sin upon him. And if you will say, yes, I surrender to this king who paid it all, who rose from the dead, signaling that his sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. 
I trust him. When you recognize and affirm Jesus Christ died for me, I surrender to him, I yield to him, I receive him, however you want to say it, he's died for your sin and your sin is paid for. The only other option is that you die for your sin. And the one who dies for his or her own sin is always dying, but never fully dead. That is a hard biblical truth. So in one sense, the question is, who will die for your sin? Will you trust that Jesus has done it? Or will you insist on dying for your own sin? So in this passage, I'm going to read it and we're going to be done. Because it's so cool. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, here's some water. Can I paraphrase? Hey, we're out in the middle of the desert, and look at that. There's water. May I be baptized? Listen, the whole thing's supernatural. How many of you know there's not a lot of water in the desert? That's why it's called a desert. (laughs) And God just happens to put a little pool or a little stream there. And so they go down in the water. Philip baptizes him in the water. Now here's the kicker. So fun. I love my Bible. As Philip's bringing him up out of the water, they may have made eye contact for two seconds. The Bible says Philip got raptured. He lit, that's, that's the Greek word. It's the same word uh, used in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, that he is literally snatched away supernaturally and he's gone. Could you imagine the Ethiopian guy? That's radical. I mean, that's radical, man. So you're, you're, you're rejoicing. You've just been saved. You've been baptized. You're looking at Philip. One second he's smiling. The next, you know, maybe he's hugging him. And all of a sudden he's like, oh, oh he's gone. And the Bible says that. He, and what I love about it is it just says, and the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. He's like, yeah, that was pretty wild. That's cool. But you know what? I'm saved. I'm not even going to try to figure it out. Hallelujah, I'm saved. And all of those people in that caravan, because he wasn't traveling alone, that, they're all seeing it, and they're just thinking, what in the world? And the Bible just says, I mean, it's just so matter-of-fact about this stuff. It just says, yeah, and, and Philip found himself at Azotus. So Philip's just, boom, and he's placed over here. And what does he do? He just hits the ground running and starts preaching again. <laughs> Friends, this is awesome. I... I do feel like a weirdo sometimes. I'm really, I know, now I'm two minutes over. I feel like a weirdo because I am, I'm just praying that God will decomplicate our thinking and we'll just start walking in this because it's in the Bible. And I'm rightly dividing the word of truth. This is not something that was for then and never again. And I just want to see it. I want for you, stand, stand to your feet, please. I want for you and for me to experience every iota of heavenly kingdom reality that is available to us right now i know we're going to get the full package when we get to glory that's great but honestly he's too good for me to just sit back and be passive and wait to experience more of him for whenever i might cross over he's here now he's with us now would you bow your head and close your eyes Friend, if you have never accepted Jesus, I'm just going to be bold in love. Why don't you right now just say yes to him? You don't need a fancy religious prayer. If you were hit in that moment where I just clarified somebody's got to die for your sin, 
and you recognize, wow, he did that for me. In your words, say, yes, Jesus, I receive you. By faith, I make you the Lord of my life right now. By faith, I trust that you will cleanse me and receive me and bring me to the Father. And then if you say some prayer like that tonight, you meant it from the heart, then I want you to be bold in your faith and say, thank you for doing what I asked you to do, Lord. Thank you. He's never turned away a single person that came to him sincerely. You won't be the first. Father, help us to expect great things of you. In Jesus' name, amen.